In today's TC chart cast, be prepared for a little salt. Our guest took collateral damage from a credit swap default. That experience did help lead him to his own unique gestalt, which helps when one is dealing with the Musk and Tesla cult. So, um, Evac Boy, did you see Georgia's um, makeshift improvement to our mics with the cutout holes in the Dixie plates? Um, Dixie paper plates. They're the high quality ones. <laughs> ultra. Dixie Ultra. Dixie Ultra. Only the best. For, to try and kind of cup the sound guys, so. around our microphones. And, uh, you know, nothing but the best. Yeah, it looks good. I think we should get rid of those Sure SM7Bs and get a couple Radio Shack microphones. We'll really match. <laughs> match the pie plate i know i've totally trailer parked i've trailer parked these microphones hear ye hear ye all ye who hear this here podcast know this this podcast is for entertainment purposes only nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice the hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors do your own research before making investment decisions, and we do hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, then, I suppose, without further ado, we can get started. Are we recording? We are ready. Peter DiCaprio, welcome to TC's Chartcast. So great that you could join us. Thanks for having me. I feel a little bit like uh, Phil Bankston coming on to coach the Packers after Lombardi retired. Your lineup has been so good so far, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint Oh, there's uh, there's no disappointing on this podcast. We're certainly thrilled to have you. Um, I, I know you well I, via DM. We, we've rarely chatted. Um, and to me, you'll always be CPP. So I hope you don't mind if um, George and I refer to you as CPP throughout this interview. It just seems natural for me. Um, so as, as is tradition on our show, um, I'm sure the, the audience is very interested in finding out more about you. Um, you're, you're a public figure on on Tesla Q in the sense that you're not anonymous, but still, I, I think many people would enjoy your biographical sketch. I, I personally think it's very interesting. So why don't you walk us through, you know, where you were born, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school in your early career sketch, maybe all the way to the point where you founded uh, your current firm. Sure. Um, I grew up in Sleepy Hollow, New York, which is just outside of New York City. It's that part uh, that was made famous by Washington Irving's story of the Headless Horseman. I went to a Jesuit high school in the Bronx, uh, a small liberal arts college in Boston, and then I did uh, my business school stint in uh, North Carolina. And now, I guess, I'm 30-plus years into a finance career that has basically divided its time almost evenly between equity, high yield, and distressed debt investing. The first eight to 10 years of my career or so... um, was spent in uh, private and public debt markets, workouts and bankruptcies in particular. Uh, I got out of business school and joined Teachers Insurance, which everybody commonly knows as TIAA-CREF, you know, the big teacher's pension fund. And when I got out of B school, um, I landed, you know, smack in the middle of the savings and loan crisis in uh, 1989. And, you know, credit literally was collapsing everywhere. Uh, And my time at teachers, especially in the um, public and private debt markets, workouts and bankruptcies. My time at teachers coincided with the apex of Michael Milken's career. Um, you know, back then Drexel was basically the entire high yield market. And so many of the deals that Drexel originated and we bought hit the wall during the late eighties and we were up to our eyeballs in workouts and things got even more complicated and fun in 1989 when uh, Rudy Giuliani decided to go after Milliken, make an example of him uh, and Drexel, which caused literally the high yield market to temporarily collapse and ultimately resulted in Drexel's bankruptcy. Um, New junk bonds essentially disappeared from the market with no rebound for about a year. Uh, And for a brief period, there literally was no bid for high yield bonds. You know, on the run, high yield, the stuff not in bankruptcy, was trading at 18 to 1900 uh, over treasuries. And back then, treasuries were at 9%. So, you know, you're talking mid to high 20s for on the run high yield paper. It was just insane. Um, because Teachers was so big, we were always the largest bondholder in virtually every issue that we bought. 
which meant that we were always the chair of whatever unsecured creditor committee was formed, um, which meant that we ultimately dictated the course of every bankruptcy because bankruptcies typically flow through the unsecured pool. Um, it was a fascinating and bare-knuckled time, and I loved every single minute of it. I met some great characters along the way. Uh, Steve Cooper, the guy that ended up running Enron in bankruptcy, was somebody that we interacted with and hired um, a lot uh, in distress situations. I moved to uh, Houlihan, Loki, in the early 90s, and I did creditor representations, again, in bankruptcies. I ended up, uh, after that, doing both sell-side and buy-side high-yield for another 15 years. So I was both an underwriter and then, I guess, a buyer um, of a lot of the paper. And uh, telecom services was my coverage area. So I was, you know, knee-deep in the whole telecom blow-up. Um, high-yield in the 80s and 90s was the Wild West. I mean, it was a, it was a fun, outrageous time. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on then, um, it's just hard to fathom actually even occurred. I moved to uh, sell-side equity research in between high-yield assignments in 1999, <clears throat> and I got my first taste of Silicon Valley, and it wasn't a good taste. Uh, I ended up working for a tech-focused investment bank in San Francisco. It was you know, uh, one of the spinoffs from the, the three technology-centric firms that um, kind of dominated the landscape back then. And I was essentially fired from that job because I wouldn't change my negative ratings on some telecom companies that the firm wanted to underwrite. So after I was fired, I went back to high yield and I joined Evergreen, which is now the Wells Fargo Funds. And uh, ironically enough, the high yield group at Evergreen that I worked for um, made the cover of Barron's for good performance, which resulted mostly from the fact that, you know, we didn't buy any telecom. So we didn't own it when it blew up. Um, and I left Evergreen in 2006 with a colleague from Evergreen, and uh, that's when we started CrowPoint. So, uh, you know, I've had a pretty varied career that has shown me both sides of a balance sheet in great detail. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've had a front row seat at multiple credit cycles, currency crises, the tech wreck, you know, the great financial crisis. And now I guess the current unicorn fiasco, which obviously includes Tesla. So that's the story in a nutshell. So, Peter, uh, you've had a really amazing career, and I suspect at any given moment you could have uh, really just kind of named w what chair you want to go sit in and, and where, what you want to be working on. Uh, but as you mentioned, in 2006, you did start uh, Crow Point Partners, uh, and your Twitter handle is at CPP Invest, which is how TC and I tend to refer to you as CPP all the time. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Why did you start Crow Point Partners? Um, talk us through the early stages and, and some surprises along the way, if any. Well, uh, one of the hallmarks of my career is being late to pretty much every trend. Um, and you can say that our founding of, you know, Crow Point was a continuation of that, um, you know, trait characteristic. My partner worked for Mario Gabelli. Um, the partner that I founded Crow Point with uh, used to work for Mario Gabelli. And Mario approached him one day about, uh, with an idea to start a long short utility fund. So uh, Tim, my partner, came to me and said, you know, um, how, how would I even do this? Now, you know, just a little background. Tim and I lived in neighboring towns. We often commuted together. We met at, at Evergreen, and our relationship started when we did a leveraged recap of RCN, which was a cable company that was competing against Comcast and some of the local incumbents. So, um, you know, we established a relationship. We shared coverage areas, and we became friends. Um, so when Mario called him and said, you know, I've got this idea um, how about it? We started down the path. Um, Mario ended up going in a different direction for a couple of reasons. Um, and, but we still thought the idea was good. And, you know, one of the guys that I worked for uh, when I moved to Sellside High Yield um, was starting a seed vehicle and they were looking for hedge fund ideas to seed. And this was 04, you know, right at the peak of the hedge fund bubble. And we presented our idea to them. They liked it. Um, we kicked around structure and we finally got to some point where we felt like we could eject and, um, you know, move on. We had seed capital. We had a working capital commitment. We had enough to get us going. So, you know, we pulled the plug and jumped. One of the reasons why we did it, um, the thesis at the time was that the market was due to 
um, fragment and fracture. And the thought um, from our seed partners was, um, you know, managers uh, with good pedigrees going to boutique firms would be able to attract assets. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said about boutique investing. Boutique managers typically do outperform. Uh, it's always good to get involved. Uh, it's often good to get involved uh, with the manager when he is just starting out because performance has a tendency to be really good at the beginning. It's just a historical fact. Um, but, you know, really from our perspective, we wanted to get back to just running money and not dealing with big firm stuff, not going to the uh, interminable staff meetings. We just wanted to focus on portfolio management and servicing clients. And that's what, you know, boutique firms are supposed to do. Um, you know, we wanted to get closer to clients. We just wanted to have a little bit more fun. So that was basically it. So, Peter, um, we too have made the transition from working for large corporations or big machines to starting our own business. Um, talk to me about the early days, the rush. Um, suddenly, everything you do accrues to you. Um, if you do well, it really impacts you. Um, if you don't, uh, obviously, the impact is still there just in the negative sense. And then also, I was very curious, you know, you said you started a long, short utility fund. Um, I'm wondering if the recent bankruptcy of the California utility and, and I would say sort of the unexpected behavior of that equity has caught your attention. There's lots of, there's some people in Tesla Q that are involved in that name. I'm curious, maybe you can give us your thoughts on, on what's going on out in California as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've joked on Twitter uh, about the joys of small business ownership. It just, you know, when you're the chief cook and bottle washer, you end up solving every little problem that comes your way. And, um, you know, there are definitely highs and lows. Um, it's terrific to be out on your own. It's great to have responsibility to you and your employees and partners. It's a very gratifying um, way to live your life. Um, but it definitely has its moments. Um, you know, we, when we started out, we chose Lehman Brothers as our prime broker. And, you know, Lehman was a big credit shop back in the day, and they had a ton of, of, of hedge fund clients in their prime broker operations. But all of those hedge fund clients were credit-centric, global macro, kind of really esoteric strategies. They had exactly one equity long-short fund as a client, me. So when the Lehman bankruptcy hit, it impacted us you know, pretty materially. The first trade of Lehman trade claims was, you know, eight cents on the dollar. And when you start a hedge fund and you roll all of your liquid net worth and most of your retirement assets into the vehicle because it's customary and expected of you, and then you run into a situation where your prime swipes all your assets and the first trade is at eight cents on the dollar. And, you know, you're looking at yourself on paper and you're thinking, you know, you're wiped out at age 44, 45, and you got to start from scratch had some uncomfortable conversations with my wife for a week, week and a half. And then, you know, the next trade claim was at 12. And then the next trade claim was at 15. And then it took us four and a half years. And, you know, we managed to find some interim financing to shore us up. But we ultimately ended up getting par plus accrued. So, you know, it worked out well. But there were some highly stressful moments in the early days, more so for my partner, because he had three times as much invested in the hedge fund as I did. Um, and he's also 10 years older than me. So he was further down the line. And, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, you have to be kidding me. Um, what was funny about it was that we signed our prime broker agreements with, you know, Lehman Brothers, U.S., or so we thought. And everybody got caught with this. Um, Lehman Brothers hypothecated all the assets through their overseas vehicle, Lehman Brothers International. So we didn't have CIPIC protection. We didn't have, you know, the U.S. bankruptcy courts. We had to fight this out overseas, which made it, you know, doubly complicated. And, you know, thankfully, uh, I think it was Elliott, um, the big hedge fund, came along and bought a, ended up buying up a huge chunk of the Lehman claims, and ours was part of that. Um, and it was, just, it was just insane. And, you know, by the way, we weren't stupid about this. We knew the Lehman train was coming, and we were working. This is actually a funny and ironic twist to the whole story. We were working with... Deutsche Bank, believe it or not, to replace Lehman as a prime. And we, we've been working from Memorial Day on. Now, it takes anybody that's done this knows that it takes three, four months to set up a prime broker relationship, get all the paperwork, all the KYC stuff, all of that done. It it's a process. 
So, you know, I'm off to the Labor Day weekend thinking, okay, I've got Deutsche Bank problem solved. We're going to come back from Labor. I'm getting emails from Deutsche Bank saying, yeah, we'll be good to go after Labor Day. Don't worry about it. So I come back to the office. It's Labor Day. You know, Lehman filed on September 15th and Labor Day is what? The first couple of days of September. So I get to my desk and I get this email from Deutsche Bank saying, yeah, we decided uh, we don't want to do this business now. So I got I'm stuck holding the bag. We know Lehman is getting to a crisis stage and we're screwed. And then, you know, lo and behold, the stories come out and, you know, you go into the office Monday morning and it is what it is. So 12 years later, and I saw I'm furious with Deutsche Bank. I never wanted to do business with Deutsche Bank again. I, I could, you know, would have loved to have seen Deutsche Bank go out of business just as a, you know, petty tit for tat. So 12 years later, I'm setting up an offshore vehicle from one of my mutual funds, you know, in the Caymans, so we can do um, some managed futures investing. And, you know, we were working through Morgan Stanley, and Morgan Stanley decides a little crow point is not worth our trouble. And after, you know, running around for six, seven, eight weeks with Morgan Stanley thinking we had a deal, they didn't, they dropped us from swap custody. So now I'm scrambling to find a swap customer because I've got all this infrastructure in place and we've got a, a huge need for managed futures. And who came to my rescue? Deutsche Bank. You know, they stepped up and uh, put a swap agreement in place for us in pretty short order. And they've been a great custody client ever since. So it's just weird the way things go back and forth. Um, this, the answer to your question about utilities is we deliberately stayed away from I, my partner, Tim, is arguably one of the three best utility investors in the world. I, there's nobody that I, would, that I would give utility money to before him. Um, he, he knows as much about the market as anybody, and we deliberately stay away from PCG just because of the political uncertainties. Um, that's such a football out there. You have no idea what direction that bankruptcy is going to go in, and we avoided it. And we avoided it for that reason and that reason only. It, it, there's always the possibility that you can get to a GM-type situation where bankruptcy laws are completely subverted and you know, favored classes or favored constituencies come out ahead when they shouldn't. And we just didn't want to take that risk in PCG, so we never played it. So, Peter, I have to go back to the Lehman Brothers um, incident, and I have so many questions about it. Um, First of all, I wonder, and I assume that your deep history in bankruptcy workouts from your high yield days had to have come in handy as you fought for uh, a return of your capital uh, that you had uh, with your prime broker. And then second, to have such a devastating crisis crush you in the early years um, of trying to build this business. Uh, And like you say, in order to start a fund like this, you have to put your own assets on the line. It's just, it certainly was expected back then. I'm not sure if it's as much the case today, but how do you sort of power through that and keep going? How do you look at your family, as you mentioned, and say, you know, we're sitting at six cents on the dollar and we got to get up tomorrow and start fighting for it. It's really an amazing story. Well, um, fortunately we had other business away from the hedge fund. Um, and you know, while it was uncomfortable to see your retirement assets, um, go up and smoke and, you know, five, six, seven days. Um, it, they were only retirement assets. We did have other assets. You know, we did have homes that we lived in, had title to, um, and we did have a revenue stream from a business. And, you know, you just kind of muck through and rebuild. And, you know, I am married to maybe the most wonderful person on earth with the best disposition you could possibly imagine. And she was a trooper through the whole thing. Um, and that was extraordinarily helpful to me personally, but, you know, we had, we had other stuff going on and, um, you know, you kind of just put your head down and rebuild. I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, you know, there are silver linings in all of this stuff. When we left, um, Wachovia at the time, which, which owned Evergreen, you know, we left a huge pile of, uh, deferred comp on the table. You know, back in the day, I'm sure it's still true today, but we were getting paid partially in cash and partially in in stock and a lot in deferred comp. And, you know, our deferred comp probably was 40% of our total compensation. So when we left, we left all of that deferred comp on the table. And you're like kicking yourself 
God, you know, should I have left all that behind? Is this really going to be worth it? Well, you know, all that deferred comp for everybody that stayed got wiped out when, when Wells Fargo bought Wachovia. So I could have stayed at Wachovia and I would have gotten wiped out anyway, you know, in some, in some, you know, small portion of my net asset pool. So, you know, TC, you just like kind of muck through. I mean, what are you going to do? (laughs) You can't stop. You just got to keep trying to do what you set out to do in the first place. And believe me, there have been 200 other setbacks since. None of that magnitude, but you just, you just learn to deal with stuff and move on. You almost became the second person that we would have to censor. I was just about to say that. Just about, but we, we will forever lord over Grant Williams with that, with that title. Um, you mentioned the deferred comp. It's funny because I had this conversation with um, an executive friend of mine who's thinking about leaving and the thing about deferred comp is it's always, it's the carrot on the end of the stick that you never quite catch up with because as soon as your old deferred comp comes, uh, comes fully vested, the new deferred comp seems to keep you stuck in the, stuck in the mud pile. Um, and so I very much admire your, um, the courage it takes to, to leave a well-compensated, relatively low-risk job to, to start out uh, your own firm. So talk to us about the, you know, the, the Lehman Brothers crisis notwithstanding. You've had a very successful run um, at Crow Point. Talk to us about the success you've had, um, the effort it's taken to build that firm, some of your early wins, um, you know, lessons learned and so on. I'm sure the audience would be fascinated to hear. We've, uh, I frequently tell people um, that we have made every mistake in the book, and we have. Um, fortunately for us, um, we haven't made them twice. So, you know, a lot of school of hard knocks type, um, of an education. Um, if I had to do it all over again, looking back after 13, 14 years, um, there are a hundred things I would do differently. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been interesting. We get a lot of, but Boston is a small town and it's still, um, dominated very much by the money management industry. Um, and we got, we get, got a lot of phone calls from guys that were interested in doing what we did. Um, you know, how do you go off on your own? What do you do? How, you know, and we were happy to help everybody that asked, um, just give them a roadmap. Um, what we wanted to do more than anything was just focus on an area of the market where we thought we had expertise, which in our case is alternative investing. Um, and, you know, we wanted to focus on a small niche. Um, there's, there's plenty, there's style box investing where you get big allocations to large cap growth or large cap core. And we never wanted to be a style box shop. We wanted to always be kind of a niche little, you know, boutique investment, uh, investment firm that, you know, focuses on strategies that can't really be knocked off in a machine. Um, and you know, with long short, a lot of that is true. It's, it's really manager skill. Um, I would say the best thing that we've done, um, is find our way to good people. Um, the partners that I have now are terrific. The managers and sub-advisors that we have in our lineup are terrific. They're good people. I love, I love being with them. I love talking uh, ideas over with them. They're engaging. They make going to the office every day a joy. Um, just, you know, interacting with people that, 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 you know, whose company and, um, you just like, you know, my partner in New York, Dave Cleary, um, I, I, I hadn't met him until 2017. And we were like, you know, brothers separated at birth as almost identical backgrounds, almost identical impulses, almost identical views. It was just remarkable. It was such a um, fortuitous event. And, and, you know, he was dropped in my lap because of a mistake that I made. So, you know, I think you have to open yourself up to serendipity and you have to accept serendipity into your life. Um, And when it comes, take advantage of it. And it's just, it's the, the one thing that has been remarkable to me, the, the th- most remarkable thing to me has been how, you know, from the worst situations, you can find yourself um, an asset. You know, I, I keep thinking back to, you know, when, how I met Dave. Uh, we had just um, a horrible experience with some long, short uh, um, 
strategies in terms of raising assets and, you know, um, breaking into the, the, the allocator pool. Um, we had a wrong manager in place for a strategy and I ended up replacing him. It was a, that was a six to seven month, you know, adjustment left a bad taste in my mouth, just the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, you know, if I hadn't started that hedge fund and if we hadn't hired the third party marketing firm that we use for that fund, and if I hadn't, as much as I didn't, we had trouble with the manager that we used. If I hadn't even started that product, I never would have met Dave because I met him through the third party firm uh, that we used for our original hedge fund. So, you know, the original hedge fund was a disaster, um, but I met Dave. So it's not a disaster. So it's just, it's just, that's what you have to accept. You have to accept uncertainty when, um, you know, when you do the small business thing and you go off on your own, you can't, you know, M Mike Tyson likes to say, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. You're going to get hit in the mouth if you run a small business, especially in our industry. So just be prepared for it and learn how to take a punch. One of the things that is a bit of a universal truth that I think people are kind of slow to acknowledge and then they hit a certain point in their life uh, when they do see, see it is that those difficulties, the things that are the most painful along the way that seem unfair or wrong, or I've taken a wrong path, taken a wrong turn, I want to redo, those are the things that surviving them actually create the greatest competitive advantage later in life um, and build a great amount of success. And I'm sure you're experiencing that, that now. And as you say, don't necessarily regret any of it as painful as it was. Yeah, well, the nice thing about getting older is your memory fades. And um, people bring up all of these incidents, horrible and not horrible. And I'm always going, well, I don't remember that. And then they tell me the story. And I'm like, oh, yeah, now I remember that. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to forget certain things. We're very resilient creatures. Yes, we so, are. So with all of that as a backdrop, share with us a bit about how you came to the Tesla story. Um, you've been a contributor on Twitter uh, in a lot of different areas as it relates to Tesla, certainly in evaluating their debt documents, um, as well as some on-the-ground reporting um, through Shorty Ground Force. What brought you to Tesla in the first place? What was your realization? Um, you know, again, um, taking lemons and making lemonade. Um, we had just shut that hedge fund and I was looking around for other managers. And the first guy that I found uh, that we ended up partnering with uh, is came from a big uh, buy side firm in Boston. And he's very well plugged into the Boston money management community. And he had come from an idea dinner. And one of the ideas that people were railing against was Tesla. This was back in 2016. And everybody at this idea dinner was talking about the management turnover and the million dollar per car valuation. I had never looked at Tesla for two seconds. I, I barely even knew that they made cars. Um, and then this same manager that we were talking to about uh, an assignment on one of our vehicles sent me uh, Mark Spiegel's investor letter. And so, you know, it was the Stanfield Capital letter that made me dig in. You know, TC, you said publicly that your interest was peaked over solar tiles. Well, mine um, was after reading my first Stanfield Capital letter, I went to the website and I pulled up the first quarterly earnings call and there was no management commentary. They just went right to the Q&A. I mean, that was unheard. I, I've been a sell side analyst and a buy side analyst for you know 25 plus years. I've been on 100,000 conference calls. I've never seen one go right to Q&A. I thought the transcript was faulty. Um, so I pulled up a couple more, same thing, right to Q&A. And I'm, I'm laughing to myself. I'm like, this, this is insane. I mean, this is just a, this is entertainment. This isn't real analytics. What, what, what's going on? So the more you, the more I dug in, I don't know what everybody else's biases are, but mine, because of my experience in the bankruptcy world, mine has always been on disclosure. Um, and in Tesla's case, there's shocking lack of disclosure. You know, Grant Williams talked very eloquently about this on your last podcast, about how they could just be simple and direct and answer questions and take a lot of, uh, of these issues off the table, and they don't. Um, so this, this shocking lack of disclosure, this easy acceptance of everything that management said that I discerned on the conference calls to me was a warning bell, a uh, warning sign, sorry, alarm bell. 
Um, it reminded me a lot of the high yield deals that I saw in 2001 to 2004, all these covenant light high yield deals, which to me were investors just not paying attention. And these high yield deals, you know, ultimately blew up because nobody was paying attention. And, you know, I'm looking, reading, listening to these Tesla conference calls and reading transcripts and I'm thinking nobody's paying attention here. So, you know, then you get to the NDAs. Ed um, Niedermeyer talked about this, you know, the NDAs that they forced people to sign after the product issues that he identified. That was a huge warning sign um, to me. Who, who the hell makes people sign NDAs over product liability? Can you imagine if 200 people had this issue with Ford? It would be front page national press coverage type news. Um, and then, you know, you get to the weird financial de definitions, factory gated, fact financially delivered, all that idiotic nomenclature. It just means a lack of clarity in numbers. And it is a hallmark of a dodgy business whose underlying fun fundamentals are either um, too levered or too volatile. Um, I, I mean, I used to see this in, in uh, Global Crossing. You know, Global Crossing used to define revenues uh, they would back, they would call them adjusted revenues, and they would back out all the deferred. And then they had all these adjustments to their EBITDA. When, when you start adjusting numbers it, for a reason, you lack real cash flow and you're trying to make bank covenants or you're trying to fit um, a line, um, a, a, you know, a line in your P&L into some formula that's going to satisfy uh, a banker or somebody else. It's just, it's just nonsense. Um, what else? The, the extent to which they request confidential treatment in their public filings. You know, you did an excellent job, TC, of identifying the Solar City issues in that terrific Hall of Fame thread that you did. But the thing that struck me always about the Solar City um, issue, uh, the Solar City case, you know, notwithstanding all the uh, issues that you identified, was the frequency with which they requested confidential treatment around their contracts. It's just absurd. If you go back and you look at the, SEC, the Solar City public filings, the correspondence file with the SEC is all about confidentiality. It's just ridiculous. Um, you know, there's nothing proprietary about their contract with Panasonic, and yet that thing is buried deep in confidentiality requests. The way they interact with Wall Street, you know, um, you know the fact that he hasn't answered Einhorn's or anybody's question about accounts receivable. Um, never allowing questions from short sellers on calls, kicking me out of a one-on-one -on -one meeting with IR. All of that stuff is around disclosure and it's body language and none of it is good. You know, Chanos hashtags this culture of deception a lot and it's 100% true. It oozes from every pore of this company. They couldn't tell a straight story about anything if they tried and they have ample opportunity to do so and they sidestep it every single time. So that's what kind of brought me to Tesla Q. You know, what keeps me there is a different story, but that's what got me there. So let's talk about what keeps you there. Um, you know, you, you had your realization, which was financial disclosure. Um, and of course, as somebody who specialized in bankruptcy and workouts, um, you recognize patterns and probably in your long history of investing, there are zero management teams of companies that behave this way where the end result um, isn't a, a substantial re-rating of the equity. So I'm guessing that your pattern recognition skills were flaring and you think this might be an interesting company to short or at least consider looking at closely as a short candidate. You get on Twitter, um, you see what's evolving organically, sort of what keeps you um, in the Tesla Q story? What keeps me is I think, ironically enough, this is the easiest company I have ever seen to analyze. There are so many identifiable data points, and there are so many patterns in the Tesla story that point in one direction. I've, I've never seen anything like this in my career. Um, and, you know, we do some funky stuff, and I have done some funky stuff in my career. I've never seen a company that's this easy to analyze. Um, you know, back to my bankruptcy days, we, I, I, we used to call them the Sunday night surprise. Um, you know, you'd be home and you'd get the phone call from your boss. Uh, you're in the middle of a workout and lo and behold, some squirrely dodgy data that the company had been hiding from you for the past six weeks while your forensic accountants were in there digging away, just miraculously turned up and the company decided to kind of um, face reality and admit, and admit to you what had been going on. And, you know, that kind of body language, that kind of instinct 
um, has always set off, um, uh, you know, alarm bells with me um, because they, they are representative of an ethos and a pattern. And, you know, the Vance book to me kind of reiterates the, the historic patterns of behavior with, with Musk. Um, and, you know, the Vance book to me was, was enlightening. You know, Musk always, always must control the narrative. And that manifests itself in a in hundred different ways. But, you know, he, he, not to mention ever the word recall or quality issue. I mean, that came through loud and clear in the Vance book. At all costs, let's avoid anything that would suggest that there's a quality problem with our product. And, you know, it's not just for financial reasons, buffing up the income statement. Um, why you see him avoiding warranty recalls, it's, it, you know, it's the brand damage or it's the risk of brand damage that he's always been fearful of, you know, if the Vance book is true. And that mindset, that, that, you know, that instinct to withhold and to be less than truthful, um, that pattern of behavior continues today. But to me, you know, to, to close out your, the, the answer to your question, the dichotomies in the Tesla story between its market cap and its underlying fundamentals are gigantic and striking. And that's what really, you know, keeps me invested. We, the, the first tweet that we ever, um, that ever gained us some kind of notoriety, I, I got it like a thousand followers after we posted it, was the very first one that we did on Tesla. And it was about total addressable market share. Um, and then I followed that up with one about uh, the shareholder turnover. And, you know, this has been a bugaboo of mine. We talk about this a lot. And it's this low quality shareholder base and the frequency of the shareholder base turnover, uh, you know, the amount of converts in the debt stack, the credit rating relative to its, to its market cap. You know, all of that and 20 things that I haven't mentioned yet, all of that is at odds with Tesla's market cap. Tesla, from, from one side of its balance sheet, in no way looks like a normal mega cap public company. And the only way it does look like a normal mega cap public company is in its stock price. You know, it's an $80 billion market cap company right now, 90 plus ish billion dollars in enterprise value. How, you know, depends on how you want to add up their debt. The vast majority of companies in the S&P are double B rated or higher. There are only five companies in my last count of the S&P with a corporate or senior, senior subordinate and unsecured rating of B3 or lower, five. So if you look at other B3, triple C plus type credits that are trading at seven, 800 over treasuries, which is basically Tesla, um, you see a bunch of really cyclical, small garbage microcap companies whose equities are dead in the water. They're almost uninvestable as public companies. They're on their way to oblivion. So on the basis of spreads and credit ratings, you know, my old world, my historic roots, you know, that's the neighborhood that Tesla you know, in which Tesla resides, and it's a pretty lousy neighborhood. $80 billion market cap companies shouldn't have single B, triple C debt ratings and corporate parent ratings, and they shouldn't be trading at 800 over treasuries. They just shouldn't. I'd love to go back a minute or two. I imagine I'm not the only one listening to you talk that got um, really kind of excited when I heard you mention that you got kicked out of a meeting with IR, Tesla's Investor Relations. Will you tell that story? That's the highlight of my career. Um, I was at a Stiefel conference, um, my old firm, ironically enough. Um, and uh, I, had, I had gotten an email from my sales coverage saying, hey, you know, we got our conference in town. And, you know, my small cap growth team was going. There were 100 small cap growth companies at this conference. So I pinged my, I, I asked for the, for the presentation list and I got the list of companies and I saw Tesla and I'm like, well, what the hell? I might as well give it a shot. So I filled out a request for a one-on-one -on -one with Tesla and lo and behold, 20 minutes later, I get a confirmation email and, uh, you know, off to the races. So I show up at the, at the conference and I go to the designated room at the Intercontinental Hotel, um, and I'm walking in and there's another investor there and Martin Vieca meets me at the door and he says, um, hi, are you here for the 1130 or whatever it was? And I'm like, yes. And he said, do you mind? There's another investor and yeah, I know you have a one-on-one, -on -one, but you, would you mind sharing the time? And I'm like, no, not at all. I'm happy that you can get as many people in here as you want. And then he come, he, 
and he says, okay, and, and who are you again? And as soon as I dropped my name, he, he, you know, gives me like the Heisman and says, oh, hold on there, sport. Um, you're not allowed in this room. We know who you are. We're not going to give you the meeting. So, you know, do us a favor and just leave. And I'm laughing to myself as I turn around and head back downstairs thinking this has got to be a first and, you know, yet more reinforcement about the ethics of this company. I, I just, I, I, I mean, Ed, Ed talked about this on his podcast. You know, he wrote that article trying to help the company. Look, guys, this is not how you should treat the regulators. You should be open and honest. And, you know, <laughs> it's the same thing. I mean, IR is doing itself no favors by treating um, skeptics the way it does. It's just such, such a mistake and such a red flag. So, Peter, just for the clarity of, of the audience's uh, knowledge, Martin is the, the sort of co-head of investor relations for Tesla. Uh, and so when he waved you out of that room, that was a high-level senior Tesla employee um, basically saying, don't come in here and give us uh, your perspective on the company. Clearly. I, I'm, I was only disappointed that Molly from security that likes to hound my, my LinkedIn accounts wasn't in the room as well to chase me away. That would have been the part of the, the second leg of the trifecta. Just, uh, just another giant red flag and a parade of red flags with this company. Yes. I, I just, yes. the, um, it reminds me of the Jeff Skilling Enron call. Um, a couple of things that you've done really well with Tesla, and maybe you can educate the audience a bit, and I've admired you for it. One is you've traded Tesla much better than most um, Tesla. You're certainly much better than George and I have. Um, and then second, you know, you've made some great threads on the shareholder base and the quality of the shareholder base and the turnover of the shareholder base. And you've made a bunch of comments about the float and how Elon is micromanaging the float of the stock. And you know, um, I think a lot of this is misunderstood. There's a lot of comments right now in Tesla Q is why won't he raise up here at north of $500 a share? Um, you have some pretty strong and informed opinions uh, on all of these topics. Maybe you could walk us through that. Sure. Um, be happy to. Well, first, let, let's set the record straight. Um, we have traded Tesla well uh, in the past, and we've also traded it incredibly poorly um, recently. You know, I had a five-star fund that was short a, a big chunk of its assets in Tesla through, oh, I guess uh, the third quarter of this year. And, you know, going into that, the third quarter of 19, um, you know, with the revenue declines and the flattening of the unit um, volumes that we were seeing and everybody else was seeing, um, I was completely caught off guard by the extent of the, what I think is fraud. Um, in that third quarter report. Um, I didn't think that they could uh, paper over the extent of the losses the way they did with one-time items. That caught me by surprise. Um, and you know, I didn't think the market would react the way it did um, to what was a, you know, on paper a pretty weak report. So for the first time in my Tesla life, which at that point was you know, two and a half years on, um, you know, I went into that call mostly short. Now, you know, we quickly rebounded and started buying calls and, you know, we've written calls. I started buying 260s, you know, right after that third quarter report. And I think the most recent batch I own right now is February 450. So, you know, yeah, we've, we, we've done okay trading this thing. It's not, it's not impacted me to the downside at all. In fact, in 2018, you know, I, I got my fifth star mostly because of our short position in Tesla and the way we traded the options. But, you know, it hasn't been all great all the time. I definitely made a mistake in the third quarter, and I'm not doing that again. Um, with respect to the shareholder base, I guess the, the, the larger point that I would make is that if Tesla had a legitimate shareholder base, it doesn't, by the way. But if it, if it had a legitimate shareholder base, those institutions wouldn't put up with Elon's nonsense. Institutions, big institutions, institutional investors bet on reliable stewardship. So in my opinion, this is just my opinion only, um, I think this is one of the reasons why you know, Elon wants to control his shareholder base. He knows that. He knows that that dynamic exists. And if this were widely owned, every time he stepped in it, he would have 5 million shares for sale in his face. And that's the last thing he wants. And you know, he knows that. He likes this, you know, substandard and thin shareholder list because he can manipulate it. 
you know, um, it's to, to me, it's, it's, it's just that simple. When, when you get the, the, the volume and the amount of turnover in Tesla does not occur in any other normal, widely owned large cap stock, because there's, a, there's, a, there's just a natural push and pull to daily trading activities. Institutional investors do not trade. We get penalized for shareholder for uh, um, portfolio turnover, when we have our quarterly board meetings, and, and everybody that's in the public fund world experiences this. You know, you report on transaction costs, you report on portfolio turnover. You do not portfolio turnover is a bad thing in the mutual fund world. These are not trading vehicles. So when you make your bets, you're making your bets for a you know a, over a, with a long sustained view in mind. So. When you see this kind of volatility in the shares and you see this kind of trading and the frequency with which these shares turn over, that's just not normal. And, you know, you get if anybody, the shareholders in Apple or NVIDIA or, you know, some of the, the, the um, more established large cap names, they've made their bets. And if they get fund flows in, they allocate those new flows pro rata across their portfolio. So there's some incremental buying. They're not in and out of the stock. So, you know, that, that, that to me, the, the fact that nobody well-known, what I would consider real, um, you know, an investor that you could bet on really owns the stock other than a handful of people to me is is a good thing for shorts. If if this were a well-rounded shareholder base and I were competing against, you know, some well-known titans on the other side, I would be thinking twice about, you know, what I was doing, and not just in Tesla and everything. But, you know, you look at that shareholder base and you're like, okay, you've got all these, you know, captive Stockholm syndrome people that are in the stock and they're not going anywhere and they haven't attracted a new shareholder in years and Fidelity fled and T. Rowe fled and some of these other guys have fled. So I, to me, that's all a terrific backdrop for a short. Peter, in a thread a few weeks ago uh, that, that you had published on Twitter, you made some allusions to uh, some difficulty that, or an incident that occurred um, for you and your firm as a result of your association with Tesla Q on Twitter. Is there anything that you can share with us about that event? Sure. Now that it's behind me, um, we can talk openly about it. But um, we we have been had been a sub-advisor to Wells Fargo since our existence in 2006. In fact, we've been managing the same funds that we've managed for Wells Fargo since 2001. So we had a, you know, 19, 20-year tenure, um, you know, uh, in the chair of these funds that, that we sub-advised. Um, and, you know, we've been on Twitter publicly since early 2017 and thundering away, away basically at, you know, Tesla and a few other subjects, but mostly Tesla. Um, but we've always we've always enjoyed a good um, relationship with Wells Fargo. They've been um, they've been fun to work for. They were a terrific partner. So one day uh, in the summer of of uh, this year, like July or August, I can't remember what it was. I get an email from Wells Fargo Compliance. Hey, want to review your social media policy? Uh, we're getting some reports that. Um, that make us uncomfortable about some of the things that you're saying. And, you know, can we set up a call to review? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's kind of odd. We've been thundering away on Twitter for 18 months now and haven't heard word one, you know, what's changed. Now my compliance officer is all over me about our social media accounts. So we spend a lot, we know exactly what we can say and what we can't say. And I get corrected frequently. So he is on top of this. So I'm thinking, okay, this just seems odd. So I sent her an email and I said, um, you know, do you mind telling me exactly what's behind all this? And I sus what I suspected was that somebody had reached out to her and, you know, somebody from the bull side of the Tesla equation had reached out and just lodged a complaint. So I casually mentioned an email. I go, look, if this is the case, just so you understand, in preparation for our call, here's the backdrop. You know, there's a, 
epic war going on between longs and shorts and Tesla. And you're probably seeing some of the, you know, collateral damage from that. And, you know, I just, you just need to be aware that this is a divisive issue and, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. So we get on the call and I said, just out of curiosity, you said in your email uh, response to me that um, you had received three complaints from three advisors. And I said, do you mind telling me who they are? So the compliance officer from Wells said, Kathy Wood, Ross Gerber, and Eric Steinman. Now, the Steinman thing made me laugh because everybody on Twitter has had a Steinman interaction. and Everybody knows how that, you know, how they typically go. But I was really surprised by, you know, hearing Ross and Kathy's name because I'm thinking to myself, they got better things to do than pester Wells compliance. You know, Steinman's a nobody trying to make a name for himself. I can understand completely why he'd want to pop up and make some noise. But, you know, Ross and Kathy, it was kind of like, really? So, um, you know, Wells tells me, okay, you know, appreciate the answers, appreciate the insight. And, you know, I, 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 we spent an hour on the phone talking about this whole Tesla thing and how we handle our Twitter account and what we say and, uh, you know, the positive responses that we do get from it. And we view it, frankly, as, um, you know, an effective way to kind of present who CrowPoint is. And I think that's been true. I think we've, we do a halfway decent job of at least laying out the analytics on t- Tesla. I think we seem credible in public based on what we've said publicly. And I made that case to Wells Fargo. So, you know, it's September and we now have the number one utility fund in the space. And, you know, we're cruising along, everything's going well. And they call us up and they tell us that they're terminating the relationship. And now look, I'm a sub-advisor. Sub-advisors under uh, Investment Company Act rules can get fired on 60 days notice for any reason at all. They can decide uh, they don't like the fact that I live in Boston and fire me. And it's perfectly legitimate. They don't have to give us an answer. They don't owe us an answer. But it just seems odd that when you're the number one manager in the space and you've done a good job for 18 years and you suddenly lose an account, it just kind of made me scratch my head. Now, believe me, we've lost business before. Clients do. um, They fire you for reasons that you can't control all the time. Um, So, you know, this is nothing new, but it just seemed odd that I would have an interaction with Wells Compliance um, out of the blue, have the number one fund in the category, and then lose the assignment a month later. So, you know, you can kind of make the connection um, but again, you know, in, in defense of wealth, it was an honor and a privilege to manage money for Wells Fargo for as long as we did. Um, and in their defense, I am 100% certain that our Twitter account wasn't the reason why we lost the assignment. I'm, you know, reasonably confident that it had, every, it had nothing to do with it and everything to do with profit concerns, taking strategies in-house, just, you know, being more efficient, whatever. But, you know, the fact remains According to Wells Compliance, Kathy, Ross, and my boy Steinman, um, you know, we're trying to cause trouble. Now, to close, I, I'm still scratching my head over Kathy and Ross, and I'm wondering if it's possible that um, they actually don't even know that this happened. And it would be interesting to me if somebody would dig and find out. But, you know, I have no idea. I just can't imagine Kathy Wood and Ross Gerber stooping to something this low. I just can't imagine it. So, Peter, I'm kind of stunned. Um, you're saying that Wells Fargo specifically told you that um, Kathy and Ross had worked with Wells Fargo Compliance to lodge a complaint about um, your tweets on Tesla. Um, we'll forget the third person because, as you say, um, it's only sort of, these are the two big names. Um, it's kind of mind-blowing, um, isn't it? And I wonder, does it ever... I guess it can't be torturous interference because, as you said, Wells Fargo can do what it wants anytime. But um, you're the number one manager in the space that they've allocated money to you to manage, and you have a strong track record. And yet, they're telling you that Ross Gerber and Kathy Wood have have complained to them about your Twitter use. Is that? I mean, I, I know you said it, but I'm so, sort of stupefied. Um, uh, I was stupefied too to hear it, but there were seven people on the call and I can promise you the other six on my side will confirm what I just told you. Um, to, to correct something that you said, there, there's, there's an interesting quirk 
in tort law in Massachusetts. And you don't, one of the things that, that would satisfy a tort claim is malicious intent. So it's not really about wells. It's about the intent of the supplier of the information. So, so Peter, what do you do? So you, you've got this business that you've built. Um, you've got employees. Um, I assume Wells Fargo is a, is a very, very important part of your business. It's a, a key client of yours. You've treated it very well. Um, you get this email, and then suddenly they, they notify you that they're taking all that business away. What do you do? Yeah, you do the same thing you do when when your retirement assets are in the Lehman bankruptcy estate. You know, you just move on. We we remember we started the subadvisory business that we got from Wells um, was a great kickstart to the business. It provided um, a long runway for us to develop the things that we're working on now. Now, look, the Wells business was not without complication. If we ever wanted to do anything strategically with the firm. Um, we probably would have had to have, you know, resigned from the Wells Fargo uh, business because, you know, when there's a change of control at the management company, you have to proxy shareholders and Wells Fargo is not going to go through the trouble and expense of proxying shareholders for a new manager. It's just going to take the business in-house. So we, we always knew a day of reckoning was coming. We just didn't know when. Um, <laughs> we were hoping it was going to be more on our own terms. Um, but, you know, what do you do? You, you, the, the business, the rest of the business, the alternative funds, the SMAs that we manage, the clients that we have now, our outsourced CIO business, which is our fastest growing product and, frankly, our best product. Um, you know, you just focus on that. And, and, and that's the more fun part of the business. You know, um, I have always been uh, dividing my time 90-10 between um, the portfolio stuff with the Crowpoint branded funds as opposed to the Wells Fargo stuff, which my partner ably and capably handled for years and years and years. I just did the operations related work for the Wells Fargo stuff that had nothing to do with the portfolios. Um, so, you know, you refocus and everybody in our business knows uh, where companies, where, where uh, money management firms trade on a multiple basis. So you go back to trying to build, you know, meaningful equity value for yourself and your partners and then doing the right thing by your clients and managing the strategies that, um, you know, you really started the firm uh, out to manage. And that's what we've done. So we refocused. Uh, we're still, you know, going gangbusters with our OCIO business. We launched the new long short fund, uh, which is a conversion of a 16 year old LP. It's got a terrific track record, two great managers. Um, I'm very optimistic about that product. Uh, so you just, you know, you refocus and you move on. Well, I certainly commend you on your uh, balanced outlook on this. And uh, one that seems to be without a trace of bitterness, uh, which takes a great amount of maturity, and I imagine is the right leadership tone uh, to set at your firm uh, as people kind of look to the leaders of the firm of what does that mean now that we've lost a piece of business? So um, onward and upward, I suppose. With with that in mind, um, you know, focusing onward, uh, what are you expecting as we head into earnings uh, for fourth quarter with Tesla and how are you thinking about uh, positioning for earnings release? It's an excellent question. Um, I'm, I'm seeing this pop up more and more on Twitter, um, you know, where people are basically throwing in the towel saying yeah, he can make up pretty much any number that he wants. So what does it matter? You know, why are we spending all this time doing projections? I actually am sympathetic to that view because I think it's partly true. Um, the one thing that has struck me in the past about the miracle quarters um, were the specific line items that were moved around and fudged to make those quarters. Um, you know, if you go back to the, well, what I think is the first miracle quarter and um, in um, 2016, the third quarter, you know, the two big line items that were monkeyed with to make the um, cash flow numbers that, that um, they published in, in 16 were SG&A and research and development. Now, if you look at SG&A for the four quarters, in the third quarter of 16, they posted a 14.5% um, uh, SGNA number as a percentage of sales, and R and D expense was nine point three percent. 
Okay, this, this third quarter of 16. The four quarters prior for SGNA expense, 25.2, 23.7, 27.7, 25.2. And then it drops to 14.6. Yeah, okay, right. Same thing with SGNA, 19%, 16%, 16%, 15%. And then it drops to nine. Well, they did the same thing in, in 18. You know, SGNA was 22% of sales, and then it drops to 10 in the, in the third quarter of 18. Uh, R&D was 11, 12, 13, it drops to five. If you, if you normalized R&D and if you normalized SG&A for the third quarter of 18, just those two line items, it's a billion dollars in additional expense. You know, if you, if you ran them at historical rates, you get to an additional billion dollars of expense. And again, back to my bankruptcy background, the one thing that we always did was what's, what's normal run rate historical activities for this company? You know, the, these new numbers, are they in line? Are they defensible? Are they believable? And, you, and you know, the bulls love to say, ah, you guys spend too much time looking backwards, not enough time looking forward. You always have to look backwards because you have to put all of these line items in perspective. You have to. So going into this, this quarter, Georgia, and how are we positioned? Um, I probably have half of the short on that I want. And, you know, we're reasonably covered with calls. And I'm probably going to just play it conservatively because, I, you know, he, he could do anything. Um, so, you know, we're a little bit short. And then I'm going to wait and see what happens after the call. Um, and then, you know, press the position uh, probably to the most likely to the downside because I don't expect, I don't think anybody in our camp expects 2020 to be a good year for Tesla. So, you know, could he pull a few tricks out of his bag in the fourth quarter? Of course. I mean, he's, he's got no shame. He's proven in the past that, that um, staying within normal reporting guidelines is something that he cares about. Um, I think he's ready, willing, and able to embrace fraud. So, you know, you, you got you to gotta plan for the worst and expect him to push the envelope. Um, but, I, you know, <laughs> I was just looking at some delivery numbers while you guys were setting this call up. And, you know, you got to remember, we got into the short because of the, I thought the total addressable market was never going to be big enough for them to survive. And if you look at 2018, they sold 245,000 Model 3s. And if you look at 2019, they've sold 300,000 Model 3s. And if you back out all the nonsense that went on um, in the Netherlands, you know, from the fourth quarter, then they barely showed any incremental improvement in Model 3 sales from year to year. And in 2019, they had the whole world open to them. So, you know, I look at this stuff and I see a business in flatline or decline, especially with the SNX. So I'm very comfortable with, our, with pressing the short into 2020. And it's just at this point, kind of a timing issue. So Peter, it's been a fascinating hour. Um, and we're super grateful that you um, chose our podcast to uh, break what I think is stunning news, although I guess unsurprising when you look back at the history of what's happened to others, including Montana and Skabushka and countless other people um, for whom an opposing view on Tesla has caused them significant dislocations in their personal life because of retribution. Um, however, um, you seem to have handled it wonderfully, uh, and, and you certainly sound like a a great leader and you've built a great team and, and I don't doubt your resilience. Let's give the bulls a little bit of what they want. Let's look forward to 2020 and let's close this great conversation with one off the wall prediction that you, Peter DiCaprio have for the Tesla story in 2020. Um, and if you're right, we'll come back and replay it. And if you're wrong, we'll just forget it. Ooh, a good one and a tough one. There's so many to choose from. Um, I think definitively you're going to see uh, evidence that the company's top line is uh, flatlining or declining. That would be, to me, the most probable and likely outcome. And I think you're going to see the you know, ripple effects in the income statement, obviously, but most importantly into the balance sheet. Um, you know, everybody ignores all of the... The, the payables balance that's been building up that's going to reverse in a hurry and going to cause a cash problem for him in, um, 
uh, in upcoming months and quarters if his revenue line rolls over. So those, to me, that's the one thing to watch. When, when revenue rolls over, what are the ripple effects in the, in the balance sheet? Because revenue will roll over. So, TC, should we give our off-the-wall predictions? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I think that uh, my off-the-wall prediction is that shortly before giving birth, Grimes will be named Chief Creative Officer <laughs> of Tesla and uh, get an honorary seat on the board. I, I see. So you really meant off-the-wall. I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we, <laughs> Peter went... Uh, Revenue rolling over, and uh, Georgia went straight that went straight there. Um, my off the wall prediction is, is somewhere in between, which is I think um, I do think that the autopilot, full self driving robo taxi business is finally going to come to a head in 2020, as the massive disparity between what's promised and what's possible and what will be delivered uh, will become clear and will finally matter. Uh, the off the wall part of that prediction is that it will finally matter. Um, and so that, that's mine. Well, we'll cheers in advance <laughs> to all of our predictions. So, Peter, look, um, it's been a thrill. Um, once again, you know, uh, I keep being amazed at the quality of the guests we've been able to get on this podcast. We, we thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, we very much look forward to having you um, back on again uh, as, as the news breaks and, uh, and you have something to say. So really appreciate, uh, appreciate the time you spent with us. Thank, thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. If you didn't think this podcast was quite the wicked pisser, then like Jackie Gleason's Ralph Cramden, I say, pow, right in the kisser. <laughs>